Well, good morning, church. How are we doing this morning? Good. Thank you for responding. It's not like you haven't had time to get five cups of coffee over there. By the way, what do we do with all that leftover coffee? That make great iced coffee to start off a, a Monday morning. Someone needs to hold on to that and put in a little to-go containers for us. Get all liquored up on caffeine on Monday morning before we head out to work. Hey, if you're visiting with us this morning, my name is Chris. I'm one of the members here at C3, and uh, it really is a privilege to, uh, to be here with you this morning. Uh, today we are continuing our Psalms uh, series, our Summer in the Psalms series, and today what we're going to do is we're going to look at Psalm 77 together. If you um, don't have a Bible with you, you can grab one on the pew there. It's going to be on page 488. Kiddos, the way that I would always remember when I was taught as a kid how to find the Psalms, um, my, my kid's pastor, um, who I didn't listen to if you listened to my sermon a couple weeks ago about um, not growing up and loving Jesus, he said, if you just kind of like divide your Bible in half, that usually gets you about to Psalms. If you end up in Proverbs, just hang a left. If you end up in Song of Solomon, dart your eyes and then hang a left. If you end up in Job, go to the right. Uh, but then what he would also say is, you know, if you take the, the half that's in your right hand and you kind of divide it in half again, that's usually where you'll end up in Matthew, and that's the beginning of the, the, uh, the New Testament. And so that was kind of how I remembered as a kid um, how to find the Psalms. And just so you know, I, I tried, and the middle of my Bible is in Proverbs 28, which as an OCD, obsessive-compulsive, anal analytical person really, really jacked with me because I learned it was supposed to be Psalms as a kid, and that's not true in my Bible. And so I almost thought about bringing a Bible this morning where the exact middle page of my Bible was the Psalms, just so I could have confidence in saying that, but never mind. That's just a little, little insight into, uh, into my, my uh, twisted mind. So um, let me take a quick poll here. How many of you guys like movies? Movies? Right. Um, Sheridan and I love movies. In fact, when we first got married, um, we used to watch a ton of movies. Um, back when, when she and I first got married, we had this thing called an MVP membership at Hollywood Video. Do you guys remember Hollywood Video? It was great. Hollywood Video, for like $9.99 a month, you could go and you could rent three movies at a time. You could watch those movies and then you could take them back and you could rent three more movies and you would never pay a dime when you got up to the counter because it was all included in your MVP membership. Because, you know, at the time, this was like the new age of on-demand entertainment and we thought that was the greatest thing in the world, that you could just walk into the movie store, you could find three movies that you wanted to watch, you could walk up to the counter, not pull out your wallet, and then leave and go and watch those movies because, let's be honest, who had time to wait for Netflix to mail you a DVD when it's Friday afternoon and you want to watch a movie that night after dinner, right? How times have changed since then. Um, but as a society, church, our, our love for movies really hasn't. It doesn't matter the, the method or the, the, the means by which you get them. Um, our love for movies has not changed. Last year, Americans spent $11.8 billion on going to the movies. You're like, well, that's how much popcorn and soda cost. I'm not surprised, right? Like, no, that's not all the extra stuff. That is just movie tickets. Um, $11.8 billion. That's a lot of money. That's so much money that you could give a check for $1,500 to every man, woman, and child that lives in the greater Houston area and still have enough money left over to buy the Houston Texans franchise. That's how much money $11.8 billion is. And and, and the reason that, that we do that is because we love movies, right? As a society, as people, we love movies because they're a great escape, and we love the characters. Um, but, but more than that, I think the reason that we as people love movies is because we love 
the story. We love the story. We love stories about overcoming evil and the good guys winning in the end. That's your Star Wars or your uh, Avengers movie, right? We love stories about rags to riches. That's your Cinderella or your Princess Diaries. We love stories about the, the quest, about the adventure. That's your Lord of the Rings or your Goonies or even Finding Nemo is a great quest movie, right? We love stories about finding a storybook romance with the one person in the entire universe who was destined to be your soulmate, right? That's your notebook. That's your walk to remember. We love those stories. We connect deeply with those stories because they say something profound about how we as people work. But inside each of those classic movie stories, there are also scenes that we love as well, right? We love the chase scene. One of my favorite chase scenes is from the old Steve McQueen movie, Bullet, right? That's a great chase scene. We love that scene, right? Because you wonder, is he going to get away? Is he going to get caught? What's going to happen? Are they going to catch the bad guy? We love the chase scene. It's exciting. It's exhilarating. It's thrilling, right? We love the, the first kiss scene where two people look at each other for the first time and they realize that, oh my God, you're the one who I've been missing my entire life. Sheridan looks at me like this all the time, <laughs> right? I always hoped it was you. All right, what was that? I wanted it so badly to be you. Whatever, yeah, uh, you know, you've got me all. That's the scene. Um, so, we, uh, we love the scene where, where the bad guy finally gets what's coming to him and, and the reign of tyranny is o- over and the evil empire gets destroyed, right? Um, we love the, the scene where the, the quest comes to an end and they finally find the treasure that they've been searching for their entire uh, time in the movie. We, we love that. We love those scenes in the movie. My favorite scene, though, and one that I, I would guess for many of you is probably your favorite scene as well is the rescue scene. It's the scene where it seems like tragedy is inevitable and there's no hope left, but someone steps in and saves the day at the last minute. I've got a little rescue scene I want to show you here. Hey, Gloves! Gloves! You're going to have to jump! Jump? Are you insane? Don't worry, I will catch you! You gave us back! I know, I know, and it is the worst mistake I ever made! But you have to jump now! It'll be okay. Uh. Okay, Gloves! I will catch you, and I will never let you go again. Not so fast! No! Let me go! Ha ha ha! 
I got you. Right? We love the rescue scene, right? Because when everything is about to fall apart, the hero steps in and he saves the day. And, and I think some of the, some of the reason that, that we love the rescue scene so much, especially as, as guys, it's not too far from Father's Day for us to just make a, make a dad plug here, is because as dads, as men, we like to think, I'm the hero. I'm going to be the one that steps in and defies the odds and braves the impossible and faces all the fears and pulls off the rescue. I'm going to be the hero at the end of the day. And while there may be a day that comes where you run into a burning building or dodge traffic to save someone or dangle over the edge of a cliff with an outstretched arm, the reality is most of the time, church, we're, we're not the hero. We're like Margot. We're the ones who are dangling there, losing our grip, and waiting for someone to swoop in and make everything okay. Or at very least, we're the ones who are, you know, sitting there on the edge of the ship going, huh, 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 like what's going to happen? So as much as I want to be the hero, the reality is that's, that's not usually where most of us end up being. So why do I bring all that up? All joking aside, the reason I bring it up is because rescue scenes bring us to the edge of our seat, right? Rescue scenes pump our adrenaline and, and they get us so excited because we want to see, is everything going to work out in the end? Are the odds going to be defied? Are we going to be able to cheer and celebrate at the end of the scene and know that everything was okay? And even though in every movie we watch with the rescue scene, we always know that everything's going to be okay, especially if it's rated PG, we still feel that tension and that excitement and that exhilaration when we wonder, is the rescue going to be pulled off. What most of these scenes in, in movies, when we look at rescue scenes, don't show us, though, this clip excluded, is the moments of panic and terror and anxiety and sorrow and grief that come when a person is dangling from the wire or hanging from the edge of the cliff or sitting in a room, a dark room where they don't know where they are, and they know nobody is coming for me. Right? We don't want to see that in the movie. That doesn't feel good. That doesn't feel nice. That doesn't make our heart happy. We don't want to see the scene where someone is sitting back and going, I don't think I'm going to make it. This isn't okay. And there's no knight in shining armor. There's no one responding to the cries for help. There's no one coming on the horizon, and you are alone. Nobody wants that scene. What is that feel like? What would it feel like to be Margot hanging there and not have anybody waiting for her as one finger at a time loses grip? We don't like that feeling, but my guess, church, is that it's a feeling most of us can relate to at some point in time in our life. It's a feeling most of us can relate to at some point in time in our life, not because you have a history of hanging off cliff edges or walking a tightrope 10,000 feet in the air, although if you do, invite me with you next time. I love that kind of stuff. But because you've experienced times in your life where your soul was in deep grief and sorrow, and it felt like the floor got taken out from underneath you, and you had no idea where to go. Because you've had times in the quiet of your bedroom late at night where sleep would be welcome, and it didn't come. Times where you were sitting on the couch and staring at the wall and trying to make sense of what was happening and not being able to piece one thought together with the next one. Most of us understand that feeling because there have been times where you've sat in the car in your driveway 
where you've been driving on the road and you've just thought, would it just be easier if I just, if I just kept going and never came back? Would that just, would that just make this better? And in those moments, church, you needed rescue, but rescue didn't come. Rescue didn't come. Rescue from overwhelming, blinding, emotional fear or heartache, and rescue wasn't there. Well, that's a downer. Why do I bring that up? Because that's what we will see in Psalm 77 today. Psalm 77 helps us see this raw, real, emotional ride that all of us have lived at one point or another. And listen to me, if, if you haven't, it's going to come. I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but it's going to come. A day when everything is falling apart and we are helpless and we are in need of rescue and rescue doesn't come. Psalm 77 helps us see what to do when we need rescue, but rescue doesn't come. So let's jump in and take a look, starting in verse 1. Look at verses 1 through 3 with me. The psalmist there says this, I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. What's the first thing that most of us do when things get bad? What's the first thing most of us do when things get bad? We pray, right? That's almost a, it's almost a reflex. It's something you don't even have to tell people who don't follow Jesus to do. People will get very religious very quickly when things go bad, right? And that's what we see here. The first thing I want us to see this morning, the first point is that when the psalmist was in trouble, when he was in need of rescue, when his soul was overwhelmed, he tried to pray. He's so confident in this. He believes this. If you look at verse 1, it says, I cry aloud to God and he will hear me. Right? Isn't that our hope as Christians? God, I'm in trouble down here. I need you to listen to me. You're going to hear me, right? In the day, I'm going to seek the Lord. In the night, my arms are going to be stretched out toward heaven without growing weary. Day and night, I will seek the Lord. I am in trouble over here, and I need you to hear me. We don't know exactly what's going on here in the psalm, but in a lot of ways, it's really irrelevant, right? What's causing the pain? What's causing the hurt? What's driving the sorrow? What's causing the heart to writhe in anguish isn't the point. The point is that it happens, doesn't it? The point is that it happens. The point of, of these psalms, is, as, as John in, intro the series, is that, look, this is real life. These are emotions and realities and experiences that are not uncommon to man. We experience this. Regardless of what's causing it, we know that there are times in life where our soul is aching. Times where everything is falling apart and you don't know which direction is up. There's nothing like tragedy or death 
or a cancer diagnosis or infidelity or a hurting child or the loss of a job or deep abandonment or the loss of a significant and important relationship that can pull us into a place of desperation and prayer so quickly. And as I said, prayer is almost a reflex, isn't it? Right? We know, we know as people when our capacities and our strength and our intellect and our insight cannot resolve what's in front of us. And we become desperate for help and we pray. But what we see in verse 3 here is that prayer doesn't always bring solace to an aching heart. Prayer doesn't always bring solace to an aching heart. Now let me be clear here. I'm not saying that prayer doesn't work or that God doesn't hear our prayers. But there have been so many times in my life where I have felt what verse 3 says, just to be completely honest. There have been so many times in my life where I have felt what verse 3 says. Psalmist seeks God in prayer, but what is the result of it? Verse 3 says that when he remembers God, when he meditates, when he prays in his heart, he doesn't feel relief. He doesn't feel solace. He doesn't sense that everything is going to be okay. He moans. He moans. His spirit faints within him. It is the feeling of laying in your bed at night and praying and feeling like your words hit the ceiling and sink into the carpet. It is the feeling that that I've had so many times in my life where I just lay in bed and I imagine being able to reach into the sky and just rip the heavens apart and just go, God, I hope you are sitting there listening to me but feeling like even if I were able to do that, I would rend the heavens open and nobody would be there to listen. Where we seek him for answers and there is silence. Where our soul needs comfort and instead our spirit faints within us. So what happens when that happens? What happens when we, as faithful believers, trust in the goodness of God and reach out to him in prayer in confidence and what we get is quiet? We'll see what the psalmist does. When the psalmist was in trouble and prayer didn't work, he thought about things that would cheer him up. He thought about happy things. Look at verses four through six. He says, you hold my eyelids open. I'm so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate it in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. So what do we see here of the psalmist? His soul is distraught to the point that he can't sleep. He longs for the way things used to be. He's sitting there going, I remember the years ago. I remember the days that have gone past. I want those again. I don't like where I'm at. Help me get back to where I was. And so what does he do for comfort if not prayer? He says, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate it in my heart. What does that mean? That means that the psalmist goes inward and he starts thinking about the things that he loves in his heart, right? As the psalmist, as a guy who writes songs, that's what he does, that's what he did, what he sought comfort in was a song that he had written. That was his outlet. That was his ability to connect. That was his ability to find happiness. That was his ability to find joy. Those two things, meditating in the heart and and remembering a song, those things are connected for him. 
He is seeking comfort in his heart. He turns to a song he knows. Maybe it's a song that he's written. And so it's no different than us church saying, okay, heart, wake up from this sadness and take comfort. What brings you joy, heart? Is it food? Is it friends? Is it happy memories? Is it music? Is it entertainment? Whatever's going to bring you relief from sadness, heart, anything to distract you from what you're feeling right now, heart, dwell on that. Meditate on that. Find comfort and relief in things that make you happy. And so he does that. But what does his heart say in response? He goes inward. He thinks in his heart, what makes me happy? What brings me delight? What brings me joy? My songs bring me joy. Okay, spirit, search within me. What, what now? How are we doing now? I've remembered it. I've meditated upon it. I've searched. How am I doing? And his spirit responds with this answer. Look at verses 6 through 9. The end of verse 6. It says, Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger Shut up his compassion. Instead of feeling hope, instead of seeing an end to his pain and a rescue from his sorrows, he's still dangling there. He's questioning whether anything that he knows to be true about God is real anymore. Do you see that? Do you see that? God, you've told me that I have your favor. Where is it? You... You've said that you love me. Have you taken that away? You've you've given me these promises. God, you've given me promises that you've told me I can bank on. Where are they? Where are you? Because I feel like you've said this is true, but you're not showing up. Are you done with me? Surely you can't be done with me, God. That's not how you work. Your love hasn't been removed forever. Your grace and your compassion and your mercy extends to thousands of generations. You're the God who who knows the number of hairs on my head and the number of grains on the seashore. You call out the billions of starry hosts in the night by name, and it sure feels like for everything that you know, I'm invisible. Where are you, God? I'm in anguish over here, and I don't see you. Help me. There are more seasons in my life where I have felt this way than I wish I had the ability to describe to you. I remember December 2013 being one of those seasons. Um, We had just been experiencing just hit after hit after hit. You You know those seasons, right? Like, you just, you take a hit, and you're like, it's okay. Like, it's going to be better. It's going to be okay. And then next week, something else happens, and you're like, it's okay. It's going to be okay. You know, we can hang in there. And then the next week, something happens. And the next week, something happens. And by the time you're done, you're just white-knuckling, and you're holding on, and you're going, I, I don't know if I can handle much more, God. This has been rough, but, but please no more. And that's where we were at. That's where I was at. And we just did experience hit after hit, and and. 
our marriage and my ministry position and our life and our finances. And um, I just, it, it was a Thursday night. I was meeting uh, with some elders at our church at the time. And um, I was going to leave that meeting and, and go hang out with some friends afterward. And that meeting was kind of the last hit that kind of broke the, the camel's back that, that kind of pushed me over the edge. And um, Sheridan likes to joke that on a scale of emotions, one to 10, that I like to camp out around a four. And if I get real excited, like I might get to a six. You know, that's a, that's a rough characterization, but it's not completely unfair. I'm, I'm a pretty even keel guy, believe it or not. I, I, I don't get riled up real easily. Um, but despite all of that, despite kind of my even keel nature, I don't know that I've ever felt the emotion of one. I don't even know what that is. Whatever that is, that's where I was as I got in my car and I drove away. Um, I left that meeting, and if there's an emotion past apathy and defeat, that's where I was. And uh, I remember I hung out with those friends for, for four hours that evening, and I can barely remember what we did even today. Mentally, I wasn't even there. I'm sure I had it all together. I'm sure I put on a brave face because I didn't want to let them know that, that deep down inside I was, I was in anguish. But I don't remember what we did. I think we sat out on someone's back patio and talked. When the psalmist says, my spirit faints, that's where I was. Deep, deep sorrow, feeling of total abandonment state where you go to sleep at night and you wake up in the morning and even if you got rest, you're more tired than you were when you went to sleep. If God loved me, if he knew my pain, if he was aware of my heart, he would not have let that happen because I was alone. What happens in moments like that, church? What happens in moments like that? What happens when your soul is troubled? when sorrow is your only friend, when you pray and you ask God to hear you and you get silence, when you seek comfort and relief in your heart and your heart only responds with doubts and questions and it persists for days, for weeks, for months. That's when most of us would give up and settle for a dark season of our soul. But that's where the psalmist makes one more appeal and I don't know where all of you are at this morning. I know some of you better than others. I know some of you are in good seasons in life and good seasons in your marriage. I don't know if anybody in, in my life at the time that I was just describing to you would have said anything different about me. Oh, he's great. He's good. I don't know where you're at this morning. But if that's where you're at, or if you're teeter-tottering on the line of that, I want you to see the appeal that the psalmist makes and I would ask those of you who may be in the same boat as he this morning to do the same. Look at verse 10 with me. Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. What helped the psalmist was not to escape his trouble, not to change his circumstances, but to remember. But to remember what helped the psalmist was to remember how good and strong and faithful God has been in the past. That's what we see here, right? He says, I'm going to appeal to this. 
Oh, stubborn soul, oh, sorrowful heart, cast your hope upon this. Remember the good years God has given us? Do you remember those? Do you remember the years where we've been at his side and his favor and his kindness and his goodness have been abundant toward us? Do you remember those? Do you remember how faithful he's been to us? Find hope in the character of God and his unwillingness to let his people go. Remember how good he's been to you. It will not always be this way. Is that not what we see in verses 11 and 12? He says, I'm going to remember the deeds of the Lord. I'm going to remember your wonders of old. I'm going to to ponder your work. I'm going to meditate on your mighty deeds. What the psalmist does is he remembers that when all hope seems lost, God has always come for his people. Hear that this morning. When all hope seems lost, God always comes for his people. He always comes for you. He will always come for you. No matter what. No matter how many times you feel like he is invisible to you, he will come for you. That's his nature. That's his story. That's why we love the rescue scene, because as image bearers, we are hardwired to love the rescuer. That's who he is. And it's with this in mind that the psalmist begins to worship, and he recalls with great hope and confidence what he knows to be true about the way God has rescued and redeemed his people. Look at verses 13 through 20 with me. He says, your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made your might known among the peoples. You, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the water, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. You see what broke through for the psalmist What brought comfort to the soul when prayer and meditation upon comforting and happy things didn't work was not to see how God was going to get him out of his present circumstance. We're not seeing that here. There's no promise that he's going to get deliverance tomorrow, is there? There isn't. What breaks through and brings comfort to the soul is to remember that God always delivers And he is always faithful to his people. And listen to me this morning. Whether you are presently going through a time of sorrow and trouble and grief, or whether someday you experience one and it comes to you, hear this. It will not always be this way. It will not always be this way. God is always faithful. Even if we are faithless, 2 Timothy 2 says, God remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. And you are his So I want to give you this challenge this morning. 
I don't think it does justice to Psalm 77 for us to end on this super happy note, like, yay, it's going to be great in the end, because it isn't always that way, is it? We want to think as Christians that we're going to wake up in the morning and be like, his mercies are new every day. Like, it doesn't work that way some days, does it? Some days you wake up and you go, if your mercies are new every day, I don't know where to find them. Because I'm in anguish over here. And I will not be comforted. So I want to challenge you this morning with this. I want you to stop and think about the ways that God has been faithful to you. I want you to think about the times where he's been good and strong and faithful. Times like I can tell you where we sat back and we wondered how we were going to be able to pay rent and then a check showed up in the mail out of the blue. Times where we felt like we were helplessly lost, completely unsure of what would happen next. And counsel was given. And friends came with a timely word. Times where we sat back and knew we wanted to have a baby and went in and the doctor's like, you're not even ovulating, you need to be on you know, these prescriptions and all of a sudden out of the blue there's there's a baby and then five years go by hoping for another one nothing happens and then out of the blue there she is times where we have prayed god save this person please and he did times where we've prayed that and he hasn't but he's been there with us I want to ask you to etch those in your memory this morning so that when the season or the day of trouble comes you can remember the years at the right hand you can remember the years at the right hand of the Lord you can know he has not forgotten you You can know that even if he is silent in your prayers and your heart can find no comfort, that he is leading you forward with footprints that can't be seen. That he's walking in front of you. He's leading you away from a dark season of your soul. He's leading you away from the pit of despair and he's taking you to a better place. All you may see right now, all you may see in that moment are the flashes of lightning and the crashes of thunder and the overwhelming insecurity and fear. But don't give up. Keep walking forward. God is leading you as he has always done for his people. Walking in front of them with footprints that can't be seen and that make no sound. And when you get to the other side and the wall of water closes and you experience the deliverance that he has for you, you will worship. And when your soul is too tired to remember the years at the right hand, ask the community around you to remind you of how God has always shown up to take care of his people and how he never forsakes us. You may not see the rescue, 
but you can know for each step you take, he's right there taking one more in front of you. The question in your Psalms guide, if you're using it this summer, is where is God in our sorrow? Where is God in our sorrow? God in our sorrow is right next to us, telling us, walk forward. I am leading the way. Trust me, you're not alone. I told you earlier about that night in um, December 2013. What I didn't tell you this, uh, tell you is, is this. A couple of nights later, um, I was rocking our second cadence in the rocking chair in our nursery. And when our babies were little and I got the chance to rock them to sleep at night, I would sing over them, Great is Thy Faithfulness. And within a couple nights of, of that, that moment, that evening in December of 2013, I was rocking Cadence to sleep. And I did what I always did. I sat there and I sang over her. And I got like one verse into the song. And I began to say, there is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not, thy compassions they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever wilt be. And I sat there, and I'm not a loud crier, y'all, but I just wept. I just wept because I knew in that moment, soul, you don't believe that, but it's true. It won't always be this way. And even though the storm clouds didn't lift, somehow in the back of my mind, I held on to that. And that was a grace to me in that season. Months and years went by after that moment in December 2013. And then in 2017, we had Evelyn. I remember one of the first times that Sheridan went out by herself for that first mommy's night out after having a new baby, which every mom loves. It was my night to put Evelyn down. And I'm sitting there in the rocking chair with her. And you know what song came into my mind? It's a song I was singing my babies for every time I had an opportunity to sing to him. And I sat there, and I was looking at her sweet face, and I was singing that song, but it had a different, it had a different feeling. It wasn't one of going, God, I don't believe this to be true. Help me to believe it to be true. In that moment, as I sat there, and I, I held her in my arms, and I sang that song, I thought back over the last four and a half years since that moment in December thir uh, 2013, and I said, God, how faithful you've been. That season was so dark, but you were so faithful to us. And I didn't see it clearly the way that I see it in this moment right now. And for me, that became an arrow in the quiver of things I could pull out and shoot at the dark night of my soul when I needed to remember the years of being at the right hand. I knew in that moment, Jesus, you've been faithful to me. Through the years, you've been so good. And when my heart feels anguish, I'll remember that even in the midst of anguish, you were faithful. God did what he always does. Right, church? God did what he always does. He leads his people toward rescue. And even in the day, church, where that rescue doesn't come for you, in that final day when you need rescue and it doesn't come, you know who's waiting for you on the other side? To perfect the greatest rescue 
story that's ever been told is King Jesus. When your eyes close in slumber here and awake in glory, the greatest rescue that you and I are ever a part of is taking place. And in that scene, the hero wins the day. So you can take comfort in knowing until that day comes, God has you. And when that day comes, he still does. Let's pray. King Jesus, it is so hard in the midst of sadness and sorrow to find goodness and hope. My prayer for my friends here who may be dealing with a dark night of the soul is not that they would see that the rescue is on the horizon, but that they would remember that you've always been faithful to them and that someday that day is going to come. You're going to come riding over the hill. You're going to come with trumpets ablaze and say, no more. This season of sorrow and grief and darkness is over. I'm leading you out of the darkness into the light, and the light is coming. And it may only be a glimpse over the horizon at that time. But they'll see it, and they'll find hope. And I pray, Jesus, you would bring comfort to their soul until then. And Jesus, for those of us who are not in that season, I pray that when it comes... We would use seasons like this where things are good to remember the years of faithfulness that you've given to us, that our soul might not be troubled in that day, but that we would know that you are always faithful to your people and you're always good. Because, Jesus, you are faithful. May we worship as people who in good seasons and bad can fall upon the faithfulness of our Lord. Amen. The greatest assurance and hope that we have that our God is faithful and that he will always come through for us is remembering the resurrected Jesus and what he's done for us. And that's what we do in communion. As you come and take this morning, dip the bread into the juice and let that be one of many things that you use this morning to etch into your memory just how faithful God has been to you. He has seen you in the midst of your greatest plight, your sin before him. He's not left you alone. He's found a way to bring you through it, to rescue you, and to give you hope on the other side. After you take it, sit down and pray. Begin thinking about the ways that God's been faithful to you. And as we have an opportunity to respond and worship, I pray that you would celebrate the faithfulness of our King Jesus. Amen.